0: this podcast is brought to you by the transitional justice institute at ulster university learn more about our work including our taught postgraduate programs in gender conflict transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk good afternoon everybody and indeed good morning to our presenter uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke. I direct the Transitional Justice Institute. Um, and it's our pleasure to welcome you here today to um, hear from uh, Professor Karen Engel from the University of Texas Law School. Um, Karen is uh, Minerva House Drysdale Regents Chair in Law and uh, founder and director of the Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the uh, University of Texas Law School. Um, Karen's also a friend of TJI. We were just uh, reminiscing of, of, as before we started about her last visit uh, to Ulster in 2013. Um, it was and uh, indeed it was very nice to see Ulster University in the acknowledgments to the book that she's going to be talking about today. Um, Karen's new book, I think it's fair to say it's been, it's been causing ripples uh, in our in our circles. Um, indeed, it's been provoking much discussion. Um, and we're particularly pleased to host it um, as part of our discussion of the CJI because we did uh, last year host a Seminar series uh, reflecting on the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, and we reflected on the agenda from, from several different perspectives. Um, what I particularly appreciate about parents book at her intervention is that it puts those Security Council developments within a much broader context in international legal developments and, and feminist engagement. Um, so, looking at uh, those WPS developments within the context of international human rights law, humanitarian law, and international criminal law, um, certainly relevant to our to our audience. And I think what is um, happening right now, we arguably at least um, I think perhaps a larger rethink around the Women peace, and security agenda and the appropriateness of pursuing these agendas through institutions such as the Security Council, for many of the reasons that Karen outlines and critiques in her new book. Um, so we are, Karen, I'm very pleased to have you. Um, a note to the participants that we are recording this event and we'll make the recording available afterwards. Um, in terms of the format for uh, the session. going to speak for about 40 minutes um, and we'll then open uh, open the session to to Q&A. I'll encourage you to um, if you have a look in the bottom right of your screen, you should see um, a purple icon. Um, If you click on that, that will allow you access the chat function. Feel free to drop in questions during the course of the session um, and uh, I'll moderate the discussion afterwards. Um, If you'd like to ask a question or make a contribution in person, that would be lovely. Feel free to turn on your camera and turn on your turn on your mic. And um, yeah, with that, I'm going to hand over to Karen. Just a warm welcome. Karen, I regret that this is virtual, that we aren't able to host you again, but we look forward to doing so in the hopefully near future um, when such things are feasible.
1: All right. Uh, Thank you so much, Catherine, Um, and good afternoon, morning. midday, evening, (laughs) wherever you might be. Hopefully it's not the middle of the night for anyone. Um, It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you today. Um, Although, as Catherine said, I do wish I were there in person because I did very much enjoy and get a lot out of my um, short visit to uh, TJI in 2013. Um, And it's interesting because uh, I, I looked back to see what I spoke on Um, And the title was, in fact, and this might be a time to start the slides, um, the grip of sexual violence in thinking about gender and conflict. Um, So that gives you a sense of how long I've been working on this book. Um, But that that meeting uh, did play an important role in it. And it's really great to be able to interact with you again, Catherine. Um, As you know, I've read and learned from much of your work, and it's terrific to see you again. So the broad questions I'd like to pose for today are why and how the women's human rights movement, including the UN Security Council's Women, Peace and Security or WPS agenda, became particularly focused on even gripped by sexual violence and armed conflict. And what have been some of the implications of that focus? So specifically, what happened in international law? and in women's rights advocacy over the past three decades that made sexual violence and conflict a prominent issue and made international criminal law and sometimes even militarized or securitized responses seem the obvious means for addressing it. And what feminist approaches to development and equality, but especially peace were significantly altered or even left on the cutting room floor as women's rights advocates honed in on sexual violence, human rights, international criminal law and international security. Now these questions are part of a longer study of mine on how human rights movements, including those on indigenous rights and women's rights, take up law to pursue their aims and how in the process they end up shaping that law, often in unexpected ways. So in the 1980s, women's rights advocates were far from the center of international law of any sort. And yet, amazingly, they made significant progress in a relatively short period in rallying the support of international legal institutions and actors. That progress, I contend, stems in no small part from their dominant focus on sexual violence and conflict. It is there that they've arguably achieved the most gains, but in ways that I fear have often moved them away from if not undermined their initial aims. Sexual violence in conflict is both reprehensible and clearly illegal as a matter of international human rights, humanitarian and criminal law and no one disputes those conclusions. But I'm concerned about the distributive effects of the focus of the women's human rights movement and later the women's peace movement on sexual violence in conflict in terms of issues that don't get addressed, as well as the ways in which they've shaped international law and policy, as well as feminism. So we can go to the next slide now. Um, The chapter that Catherine distributed uh, and, and asked me to focus on today is on the treatment by the UN Security Council, primarily, but not only through the Women's Peace and Security Agenda, and the institutions and offices is created, Um, so the, the treatment of the Security Council on what is now it now calls conflict related sexual violence. Now, that chapter is, as you can see, the fifth and final chapter of the book, not counting the epilogue, and I use it largely to show how the WPS agenda sometimes unwittingly has adopted and perpetuated a problematic common sense about sexual violence and conflict, Um, especially since some of you know the WPS work much better than I. My aim is to, as Catherine just suggested, really situate the chapter for you in the larger argument of the book. Um, And I'll do that in the following way. If we can go to the next slide. Uh, First, can we go to the next slide? Uh, First, I'll give you a bit of background on the history and trajectory of the women's human rights movement. Um, Next, I'll describe today's what I consider to be today's common sense on sexual violence and conflict, much of which has been articulated by the Security Council. Third, I'll give you some of my critiques of the common sense and the ways it has been deployed, primarily but not only by the Security Council resolutions. And finally, I'll discuss what women's human rights activists might have left on the cutting room floor as they turn to sexual violence and conflict. Um, And especially I'll be looking at what's happened in terms of peace. So let me now begin with some background on the women's human rights movement and its treatment of sexual violence and conflict by transporting you back to 1988, which maybe a few of you remember or have heard about. So the human rights movement was relatively young and it largely relied upon the naming and shaming of states for enforcement. There were a number of UN human rights treaties, though not nearly as many as today, and only a few had individual complaint mechanisms. Of the regional human rights courts, only two were in operation and only the European court had handed down a decision in more than one contentious case. Although international humanitarian law, and this is important, it had for some time recognized rape as a war crime, um, even though it did recognize rape as a war crime, it did so largely as a crime affecting men's honor and property. And there were no international criminal institutions to even consider enforcing it. Now, if the human rights movement was young, women's human rights were even more nascent. Although women have been organizing transnationally through the UN since the mid-1970s under the banners of peace, development and equality, many were just beginning to see mainstream human rights law and movements as an avenue or as avenues for advancing issues of concerns to women. And I say that notwithstanding that the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women was adopted in 1979. It was in some ways a pretty radical but specialized instrument and women's rights advocates in the early 1990s, um, had late 80s and early 90s, had critiques of the way it had been received by states, which they believed simply hadn't taken it seriously as evidenced by uh, a large number of reservations and lack of enforcement. More importantly, they contended that it did not explicitly address violence against women. They often argued that human rights would need to be radically transformed in order to attend to women who live much of their lives in the so-called private sphere. And in those days, mainstream human rights NGOs strongly opposed that kind of transformation of human rights. Now at the same time, some feminists from the Global South expressed concern about many women's human rights advocates from the North, which in a book I call Structural Bias Feminists, Structural bias feminists saw male domination and female subordination and often sexual subordination as the defining structure of society to be addressed. And for those who I call third world feminists, because that's basically what they called themselves then, structural bias feminists improperly focused on third world cultures as the greatest impediment to women's human rights.
2: So not only did
1: third world feminists contend that economic disparities between the north and south had an arguably more significant role on women's lives in the south. They also criticized first world feminists for representing third world cultures in essentialized ways as backward and uncivilized and treating third world women, as one author put it, as passive objects of male transactions. And I'm saying this out for you because Um, I I want you to be aware of that debate and then we'll see how silent really that critique is in a lot of the common sense today. Now, that was the late 80s. By the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993, um, just a few years later, much had changed. Although the Cold War had ended, armed conflict was waging in the former Yugoslavia, and the media was flooded with reports of rapes as part of the conflict. The Security Council had creatively used its enforcement power under chapter seven of the charter to establish the ad hoc International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, a move that was strongly supported by human rights advocates. And as with many reform projects, women's rights advocates took advantage of the moment. They concentrated on sexual violence and conflict as a paradigmatic issue which not only helped women's rights gain mainstream traction, but also worked to mediate some earlier tensions among feminists, including the one I just told you about. So after all, no one could claim that rape and war was culturally defensible. Today, the efforts of structural bias feminists show. We live in a world with a number of international criminal institutions in operation all of which have convicted individuals for rape and sexual violence, though not as often as many would like. But a common sense has developed around sexual violence and conflict, amplified by the Security Council and the WPS agenda that I believe we should be wary of. So now I'll turn to that common sense. And I'll begin by showing you a one-minute video released in 2014 by the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It was meant to set the stage for the Global Summit to End Sexual Violence and Conflict, which was co-hosted by then-UK Foreign Secretary William Hague and UN Special Envoy, um, you might know her for other reasons too, Angelina Jolie. This summit followed on and led to other work by Hague and Jolie before the G8, and the UN Security Council, and was attended by governmental and non-governmental experts in the field, many of whom were feminists who had long worked on the issue. The video can still be found on the UK government website and on YouTube. Um, And as you watch it, I'd encourage you to think about what it says about the harm of sexual violence in conflict, about who the victims and perpetrators of that violence are, And what the proper responses to it should be. Um, And also I want to encourage you to listen to both the images and the words because they sometimes diverge. So uh, if you'd like to play it, Catherine, that would be fabulous.
2: There is a weapon that doesn't just leave physical wings. It leaves emotional wings. A weapon of power, violence, and control. A weapon that is just as scary as bombs and bullets, but invisible. Rape. Rape and sexual violence are used against women, girls, men and boys. Victims are sometimes abandoned by their families. And the anger and shame left behind can tear communities apart and make wars last longer. Especially when the monsters who do it are allowed to get away with it even live near their victims but it doesn't have to be this way rape and sexual violence are the worst crimes you can imagine but they are not an inevitable part of war it's time to act to end sexual violence in conflict time to act to bring those responsible to justice time to act to let governments know that enough is enough time to act that those who live in fear of sexual violence have a chance to feel safe time to act and make your voice heard that's
1: it now we can thanks go to the next slide lip of
3: greece denmark in 19.
1: So I take this video seriously because of its basis in transnational feminist and international legal discourse, as well as its embeddedness in much of the international law and policy on sexual violence and conflict. And indeed, some of the language is directly taken from Security Council resolutions. So although this common sense developed over time and in many ways was largely solidified by 2000, when the Security Council uh, or when the Women, Peace, and Security agenda began, um, they promoted certain parts of it uh, over over the next uh, 10 to 15 years, and also gave voice to. I you mean, know, often the articulation is from them, including including uh, this video, since it does take so much language from those resolution, resolutions. So, what's the common sense then that we hear um, in terms of harm? rape and sexual violence are the worst crimes you can imagine Um, and that's because they cause physical and emotional wounds. uh, but they also tear communities apart now the video says that even though it doesn't visually depict that the community is torn apart Um, but it is very much the common rhetoric we find about sexual violence and conflict with community generally connoting ethnic minority um often but not only in the global south. Uh, we we also hear the part of the war is that it or part of the harm is that it can make wars last longer. Um, and then uh, also it's about uh, shame being a very important part of the harm and it coming uh, that it, that is imposed by the often by the community um, in which the victims live. So if we can go to the next slide. Um, I have a quotation that I also include in chapter five from the network of women peace builders who were very much in many ways trying to oppose this common sense, um, but included uh, in this open letter from 2011, uh, a, a very apt quote for the common sense. Rape is the worst crime that women or men can endure and survive. The trauma lasts a lifetime and has ripple consequences of ostracism from family and community as well as physical damage. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Um, to continue with the common sense, um, it's used against women, girls, oops, uh maybe go back, sorry, to the common sense slide. Apologies. Uh, it's used against women, girls, men and boys. Now, you heard that you saw that in the Network of Women Peace Builders quotation. Um, That's the language that's commonly used, uh, although the video in fact depicts the woman and girl as the targets. It's been there's been a deliberate move um, to expand the language over time. Um, U.N. Action on Sexual Violence and Conflict, for example, is called explicitly for a focus on sexual harm away from a broad category of either women or gender. Next, it's convicted. It's it's perpetrated by individual male monsters. Um, There's surprisingly little attention to the structural causes of sexual violence, but more importantly, of war itself. Uh, And few take seriously the possibility that women might support or commit atrocities or even support war. So the women's movement peace movement consistently pushes for more women at the peace table, With the assumption that it would be more likely to lead to peace. Then in line with the individual monsters, criminal punishment is seen as the best way not only to respond to, but to deter sexual violence and conflict. Um, And finally, we see that peace will ensue once perpetrators are behind bars. So at the end of the video, the family's out playing again, Uh, with apparently little concern about the war that we can imagine is continuing to rage. So now I'll turn to my critiques Um, and as we move to the next slide, I think it's already clear that I have some critiques of each element of the common sense, Um, but I consider them throughout the book, attending to how feminist attention to sexual violence and conflict achieved significant mainstream appeal and even success as women's human rights advocates pursued their agenda through a variety of international, institutional and legal sites and debates. I uh, no, so go back to the still on the outline. Sorry. Um, specifically, I show in Chapter two, how some women's rights advocates participated in the deployment of allegations of mass rape and sexual violence to call for or justify military interventions in countries from the former Yugoslavia, to Libya um, and the latter being done under the responsibility to protect. And in chapters three and four, um, which I call calling in the judges, I demonstrate how they participated in the development of the rules and jurisprudence of international criminal institutions, with the focus um, on the ICY and ICTR where, uh, where, where those, the, the rules and jurisprudence were largely forged. Um, In Chapter 5, I show how these trends really came together in the Security Council, particularly the WPS agenda, because obviously the Security Council was um, involved in the others as well. Um, But I I show the trends uh, in the WPS both in its criminalization efforts and in its promotion of a variety of security measures, including its responses to terrorism and what's called violent extremism. And I discuss how they carried forward other aspects of the common sense as well. So now we can go um, to and I, I think it's two slides now, um, but you can. Yeah, so uh, it wasn't obvious that the WPS would go this direction, as there had always been significant disagreement on some issues. In fact, when women's peace advocates came together to promote resolution 1325 in 2000, they claimed to do so in part to challenge the Security Council's treatment of women principally as victims of war. But the resolution also discussed violence against women, including sexual violence during conflict, and it included other aspects of the common sense. Now, six years later, others involved with the WPS succeeded in the passage of resolution 1820, which focused primarily on sexual violence and conflict. And after that, resolutions have appeared throughout the years in a leapfrogging pattern. So that is resolutions concentrating on women as sexual victims of conflict have been succeeded by resolutions that emphasize the need for women's centrality to peace processes, which in turn Have been, uh, which, which in turn have been followed by resolutions that center around women as victims of sexual violence. Now, for all their differences in emphasis, they have all basically, and now you could click a few times, Catherine, they've all basically concurred in their assumptions. Ah, no, you have to, can you, can you click it rather than going to the next slide? Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, Maybe it won't let you do it. Sorry. It's okay, I'll tell you all. So they've all basically concerned concurred in their assumptions about the harm of and proper responses to sexual violence and conflict. Um, And if the animation were working, all of those on the left would go and join all of those on the right. Um, And uh, in fact, the most recent resolution. Um, 2493 could arguably be an exception that came out after I finished the book manuscript um, because it doesn't mention sexual violence, but it does call for the enforcement of all previous resolutions um, and naming all of those on both the right and the left. So I'll concentrate my critiques of the common sense here with a focus on the WPS agenda on two large issues. And I think hope this is the next slide. yeah, so first is the reliance on criminal law to address sexual violence in conflict. And second, the use of attention on sexual violence to justify the use of force, often in the language of securitization. Along the way, I'll touch upon other aspects of common sense, particularly its assumptions about shame. In terms of criminalization, I'm troubled by the general reliance on criminal law, um, as the main enforcement avenue, as well as with the specific ways in which it's been used to try sexual violence and conflict, both in terms of the rules of procedure and evidence it is promoted and its reliance upon assumptions of shame and stigmatization. And now we can go ahead and turn off the slides. So the enthusiastic support of women's rights advocates for international criminal tribunals, which is taken for granted by all involved in the WPS, began in the early 1990s, but it was part of a broader trend. If human rights advocates had in the early days worked to free political prisoners, they now began to work to put people, this time human rights violators in prison. In addition to promoting international criminal institutions, they started to fight what they identified as a culture of impunity, which was a term rarely used before then um, and is is quite prominent now Um, and they eventually succeeded in seeing human rights law require that states investigate, prosecute and punish non-state actors for the commission of serious human rights violations. In the context of the WPS resolutions, as well as the general human security resolutions they accompany, we can see this criminalization emphasis. So beginning, in fact, with Resolution 1325, um, but accelerating over time, the resolutions call for criminal action as a means to fight impunity. Relatedly, human rights law often prohibits amnesties for many crimes, even when passed as part of a peace process or transition to democracy. Now, while legal debates continue about what uh, crimes should or should not be eligible for amnesty, A consensus exists, which you can see in the WPS resolutions, and it wasn't quite there in 1325, but it gelled over time that any acts of sexual violence should be excluded. Now, I've argued elsewhere that this criminal law lens can lead human rights advocates to overemphasize the significance of a few bad individual perpetrators, affecting our ability to attend to structural biases, the context in which they occur and their distributional effects. It may also even encourage states to overreach in their domestic arrest and detention of alleged perpetrators, And the preclusion of amnesties might make peace deals more difficult to negotiate. Now, I'm troubled not only by the reliance of women's human rights advocates on international criminal law, but on the ways that they have promoted it in one instance and acquiesced in another to its particular treatment of sexual violence and conflict. So first, they've succeeded in promoting expansive rules of evidence and procedure that they've generally not been able to achieve in domestic jurisdictions, often because they raise due process concerns. Although we often think of the international tribunals as models of due process, and in some ways they are compared to many national criminal law regimes, they're ways in which international criminal law can encourage a skirting of important due process considerations. And this is most evident, of course, when broad substantive criminal law provisions at the international level, or even in Security Council resolutions that name alleged perpetrators, encourage perhaps less meticulous national prosecutors to act in their name. But there are also concerns at the international level itself. Early on in the ICTY, for example, some feminists attempted to eliminate the possibility of a consent defense. And although they were unable to do so formally, they in fact achieved a similar result in the end. Ultimately, judges determined that prosecutors could meet their burden to demonstrate lack of consent by showing that the alleged actions occurred during conflict, which according to the ICTY, includes the whole territory of the conflict, whether or not um, actual combat takes place there. And it's now the rule in every criminal tribunal that any sexual activity between combatants on one side and civilians on another during conflict is considered inherently coercive. Now that rule tends to reinforce nationalist and essentialist presumptions that people would not engage in consensual sexual relations across ethnic lines. And defies the history of nearly every region we could think about. Now, in some instances, it also turned out to be difficult to find individuals willing to testify or even admit to be victims of sexual violence. Prosecutors and feminists alike assumed the violence had occurred and then they often pinned that lack of testimony on victims' shame and fear of stigmatization. And in response, they devised approaches to manage shame ranging from ICC prosecutor Luis or former ICC prosecutor Luis Moreno Ocampo proposing in Libya to build a rape investigation without any victim of rape, to the urging by prominent human rights lawyers, Christine Chinkin and Madeline Reese, to read a relatively new Security Council resolution, 2467, to call for the prohibition of the cross-examination of those who testify to being victims of sexual violence, which they laud as quote, exactly what is needed for justice to be made accessible. Um, I find their enthusiasm surprising, um, given that nearly every human rights instrument provides a right for the accused to examine those who testify against them. Um, Second, women's rights advocates. So those are in terms of what they've promoted, but they've also largely acquiesced in international criminalization, as well as calls for military intervention, which I'll talk about shortly in ways that have relied upon and perpetuated the notion that the principal harm of sexual violence is the debilitating shame that it renders, not only to individuals, but to communities. Now, the key idea here, which we've already seen or at least heard in that video is that the rape of individual women damages the entire community, creating a group harm as well as an individual harm. Now, importantly, this result is the opposite of what women's rights advocates originally aimed to achieve. Indeed, they insisted early on that criminalization of rape in the late 20th century should differ from its prohibition in early days, um, which, as I mentioned, often saw rape as harmful in war because it destroyed the enemy's property or constituted an attack on its honor. Now, feminists hope to focus on the harm to women as women but once they also saw it, some sought military interventions or even just convictions based on genocide or even crimes against humanity. Often as a means to demonstrate that rape and conflict was particularly atrocious, the ethnic group took center stage. So demonstrating genocide in the case of rape requires an essentialization of the group as one likely to have its ethnicity destroyed by the rape of its women. Now, as Hilary Charlesworth pointed out in response to the ICTR's groundbreaking finding that rape was constitutive of genocide in the the case of Akiyashu, um, she says the tribunal found, quote, that rape is wrong, not because it's a crime of violence against women, but because it's an assault on a community defined only by its ethnic composition. Even echoing some of the third world critiques that I've already told you about, Charlesworth argued that quote, this understanding of rape perpetuates a view of women as cultural objects or bodies on which and through which war can be waged. Um, And I would add that the tribunal's analysis in a way makes the Tutsis strangely responsible for their own potential genocide. Um, Presumably, had they not believed so strongly in sexual virtue and honor, the group would not be destroyed by rape. Now, why would women's rights advocates as well as women's peace advocates um, have acquiesced in and later even perpetuated this analysis? Now, I think they did so partly because they set their sights and this would be mostly true of the, the ones who turned to criminal law. They set their sights on achieving what many consider to be the ultimate recognition of a crime, a conviction for rape as an act of genocide.
2: And the only
1: way to achieve that victory was by arguing that rapes were intended, again, intended to destroy the ethnic group. um, And communal shame became the least problematic way to make that connection. But a belief in communal shame provides other advantages, too, especially when tribunals and advocates assert, as they often do, that communities shame by rape, in turn, shame and stigmatize the individual women who have been raped such a view provides an explanation for why victims might not be willing to testify and in fact has been used to justify some of the rules and approaches to investigation that i just described it also provides a further justification for promoting criminal prosecution of sexual violence so time and time again advocates and institutional actors including uh, the wps through the wps insist that criminalization will shift the shame from victim to perpetrator. Now, like other justifications for international criminalization that can be found throughout the WPS literature and resolutions, that it deters, you saw that in the video, that it leads to peace, or is what victims want, um, this one is rarely substantiated. Now, my critique of the WPS agenda goes beyond its acceptance of and support for criminalization as the proper response to sexual violence and conflict and even of its reliance on shame. We often hear, as we did in the video rhetoric about sexual violence, making wars last longer in um, and and and, uh, and but but even though we hear that um, peace itself is often forgotten as a goal. And is even arguably impeded. So the women's peace advocates who promote greater participation of women at the peace table, if unwittingly, have undermined some of their own aims by not challenging some of the ways that claims of sexual violence have been used, including in the resolutions that they've been involved in, to call for armed military, counterterrorism, or other security interventions. Now, at least since the first resolution that was focused on sexual violence, resolution 1820, was passed in 2008, these resolutions can also be read to justify the lawful use of force as they use language often found in Chapter 7 resolutions. Gina Heathcote and Di Otto point to language that expresses the readiness of the Security Council where necessary um, to take steps to address widespread or systematic sexual violence in situations on its agenda. Basuki Nasaya attributes some of that military interventionist language to the emphasis on combating terrorism in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. What she sees sees is intertwined with a great deal of feminist activism during that time, including around resolution 1325. She notes that US feminist Barbara Ehrenreich explicitly marketed feminism as a counterterrorism strategy in a 2005 piece she wrote. At stake for many feminists was not only heightened visibility and significance in international law and policy, but also very specific material gains um, with arguments for greater funding for women's groups, as one feminist put it in 2008 an important counter move as an important counter movement to terrorism. Now, in 2015, Resolution 2242, which I had in the middle on that slide, um, explicitly brought the Security Council's counterterrorism tools to bear on sexual violence. And although the resolution is also seen to be about women's role in peace building, um, it it does so, it it turns, it, it looks at women's role in part by calling for the participation and leadership of women's organizations in devising strategies to counter terrorism and violent extremism. Now, that's part of a larger call for um, as, uh, for greater integration by member states and the UN of their agendas on women, peace and security, counterterrorism, and countering violent extremism, which can be, as it says, conduce terrorism. Now, as Christine Schengen points out, Um, These latter programs often uh, involve military actions um, and, in fact, are implemented in conjunction with the armed forces. And largely for this reason, Fenola Neolene urges some cautionary restraint on enthusiasm for that resolution. But for the most part, feminists and women's institutions acquiesced in that language, notwithstanding UN women's 2015 global study, which insisted that quote attempts to securitize issues and to use women as instruments in military strategy must be consistently discouraged. It gave and and I think that women's groups did this acquiesced in it in large part because it gave them a way to be in the counterterrorism conversation. Now beyond being conflictogenic. Greater attention needs to be paid to the way that the new Security Council approaches to countering terrorism and violent extremism. So greater attention needs to be paid to how they are not only conflictogenic, but are partly hinged on old pathways for intervention that have resonances with old colonial tropes of saving brown women from brown men. Tropes that invoke racialized and Islamophobic depictions of other societies as misogynistic and intolerant. They present those societies as in contrast to those that they that supposedly contest misogyny um, with the same moral fervor and military might with which they fight terrorism. Um, And again, uh, we need to see how this gets put forward with little resistance or application of lessons learned from third world feminist critiques. Now, I think it would be too simple to say, as some have, that women's human rights and peace advocates or their aims have simply been co-opted, especially by non-feminists. Feminists, Feminists, including those originally behind resolution 1325 and what they see as its progeny, wanted to participate in the mainstream action, whatever that action might be. And in doing that, they've they've not only not countered but they've taken advantage of other feminist and non-feminist agendas that fuel panic about sexual violence. So let me end now um, by by turning to the cutting room floor um, and taking a quick peek at it. So I've already suggested a number of ways in which earlier third world critiques of the essentialization of many women's human rights advocates have largely disappeared within the debates and discussions about criminalization and securitization. But other international feminist agendas, including by third world feminists, have also not made their way into these agreements. So as women's human rights advocates have promoted or acquiesced in the criminalization, militarization or securitization of sexual violence and conflict, they've displaced feminist commitments to peace and disarmament, anti-imperialism, and ironically, many gendered arms of conflict. Um, And that's something I talk about a great deal in chapter five, I'd be happy to uh, talk about in the Q&A. But I wanna conclude by bringing our attention back to some approaches to women's rights and even human rights more generally, um, that were left by the wayside as women at women's advocates have taken advantage of the international community's focus on sexual violence international criminal law and even counterterrorism. So I mentioned at the beginning that feminists had organized transnationally from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s under the UN's banners of peace, development and equality. As they turned to human rights and the turn to and, and mainstream recognition of human rights meant a priority on sexual violence and conflict that then led um, to ensuing institutional acceptances of it, They didn't carry forward um, those issues, at least in in the human rights and what became uh, its subsequent realms. So peace, for example, has never become a human rights issue, despite an attempt in the 1980s. In general, as we know, the focus is on what happens in armed conflict, not whether the conflict itself is illegal, um, giving states a chance to shift the focus away from aggressive war or occupation. But as as even women's peace advocates who are involved with the Security Council's WPS agenda uh, or or even they have largely dropped their stronger, substantive demands for disarmament and other avenues for ensuring peace. Um, Not only do they work mostly to bring women more centrally into peace building, um, as I've already suggested, they rarely consider that women might be part of the problem. Now, much of the energy around women and development was within the women's human rights movement um, or or within the women's human rights movement, um, did have a critique of colonialism and imperialism, um, and that critique largely went by the wayside as eyes turned to violence against women. Now, this shift in focus is not unique to women's human rights, as many others have pointed out, um, but Catherine's thinking has actually shown that some of the feminists most focused on women in development went on to be major players in combating violence against women. Um, and she says, unlike violence against women, the issue, um, quote, the issue of women in development never spawned a major global network or in camp or campaign, in part because um, these concerns, so this is part of the quote, again. these concerns were so systemic that they defied individual or group efforts to effect change. Um, somehow, feminists believed uh, if naively that addressing physical harm um, would be easier and we could say maybe they thought that was sexual violence as well. Now, larger concerns of gender or sexual equality also got narrowed to sexual violence in conflict and then even within it. So um, attention to other types of wartime harm that women experience from death and the death of loved ones to displacement, loss of infrastructure, livelihood and multiple Forms of human security have been obscured by the intense focus on sexual harm. And other approaches to attending to violence in conflict, including sexual violence, have declined in importance as criminal law has gone from being just one of many tools to becoming the principal and indispensable tool of transitional justice. The centrality of criminal law persists, often in the name of victims, Notwithstanding that as recently as 2015, UN Women released when, uh, in UN Women released a global study, which I already mentioned, but, uh, but it said it is, quote, clear that women in conflict-affected settings favor interventions that are focused less on perpetrators and more on empowering women and girls. And UN Women is not alone in its finding. Other studies show that victims are more interested in financial reparations than criminal prosecution, for example, and moreover that they're even willing to talk about sexual violence, quite willing to talk about it um, when reparations are at stake. So in conclusion, my principal aim with this book as a whole is to see the path that the path that women's human rights took, both in its laser focus on sexual violence in conflict and its primary uses of criminal law and international security to respond to it, were neither necessary nor natural. Women's human rights advocates have achieved many victories around sexual violence and conflict, but it's time to take stock, revisit priorities, and imagine human rights and peace anew, largely by putting our differences back on the table. So thank
0: you. Wonderful, thank you Karen. one of the disadvantages of this format is that we can't give you a round of applause, but um, I know that we're giving you a virtual one. Um, so thank you so much. Um, it was so rich and so provocative. Thank you. Um, we have um, quite a lot of folks here, so I'm going to um, give people just a few moments to gather your thoughts. Um, if you can, uh, we have a chat function um, which you can uh, write questions, um, but I would encourage you to turn on your cameras, turn on your microphones and uh, do come and join the conversation. Uh, if you're willing, um, and I think I'll and I'll just uh, take chair's prerogative of me, Karen. Um, I've sort of uh, been reading down dozens of questions, and indeed, um, as I've been reading the book, likewise. Um, this was one um, uh, one thought I have uh, of many. Is is there? Um, this was one thing I, I do wonder a bit about if maybe the. Maybe your thesis maybe presents the uh, sexual violence in conflict agenda as, as more settled than it is. Um, so here I'm thinking about interventions from elsewhere in international law uh, to try to displace that priority of sexual violence. Um, particularly, I think the CEDAW committee's work on this you know the CEDAW I think has been quite proactive and deliberate in, in trying to shift. And both the security council dominance on this agenda, but also how the agenda is defined um, through its General Recommendation 30, through its engagement with states affected by conflict, um, and it seems to me to, to bring both that structural focus and also a focus on, on socioeconomic issues um, that uh, you identify as, as being sort of sidelined by much of these developments. Ah, so is that the?
1: So what else is happening? Is is the Question and pointing out to see attempts. Yeah, I think and actually I'm writing a piece on CIDA now um, And I'm looking primarily at its history and it's much more third-worldist history um, but you know I and, and this is something we could talk about a lot and, and obviously um, you studied it and worked on it and and I I haven't followed um the specific attempts in CEDAW and that's largely because sort of looking at the larger historical trajectory I see that CEDAW did something very very similar um, so I think that in the early days it did have a much broader agenda there was a lot of attention paid to development the commission on the status of women as it was devising CEDAW you know it did talk about women in the private sphere but it was really much more focused on um, productive labor and the ways in which or reproductive labor and the ways in which it was undervalued. Um, it had, and, it, and about how women were treated in the development. I mean, it was a, just a much more broad and what I would consider um, radical agenda. And then it too, right, around the same period of time said, and I hinted at this, there's a problem because it's not focused on violence against women. And then there was the debate, as you know, about whether there should be a new convention that looked only at violence against women or whether they should go back and reread CEDAW, read that into Mm CEDAW. And then violence against women sort of took off as the main issue that CEDAW began to address. And you can certainly see that in the optional protocol um, and the cases that it's taken up to adjudicate it. So. I, I, I guess I think partly like if it's happening that they're pushing back, they're doing it still relatively subtly. Um, and, and I, and there is something about the ways in which, um, I mean, one of the things I tried to do with the book was to like follow through these different institutions, these patterns, and it's great to see the divergence. Um, but I think that actually we see a lot more convergence, um, and than, than we otherwise might. And I think it's important or than we imagine and I think that they come from very similar places. Um, you know, that said, I think it's important to remember that you know, it is a human rights instrument. <laughs> um, and it is like women's human rights advocates, many of them abandoned it for criminal law. So um, I appreciate the turning to it again more recently and saying, all right, what, what, are the, what are the different approaches? Or what can we take from one? And can we bring it into the other? Or should we just um, forget about the Security Council, as many have suggested?
0: Absolutely. OK, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, so for our attendees, can I invite a question? I'm, just, I'm a little worried that technology is not working. Yeah, uh, Aoife has her hand up. Aoife, yeah, go ahead. Aoife Donahue from um, Durham University. Hi, uh, Aoife, feel free to turn on your camera Aoife, so no pressure.
3: Ah, There you are. Ah, myself? Not working? Yes. <laughs> I can't perfect. see myself. So I'm. I'm oh, <laughs> uh, well, I can't see myself. I'm just looking in the wrong place. Sorry. Um, was, I really enjoyed that actually. Yeah, that um, and it made a lot of sense to me how you described the process of how these things occur. It it, it instinctively made sense to me. And I, I was wondering, I read an article by Christine Bell recently about on governance and the idea of not resolving things, you know, that you, you, you do a lot of things, but you never, you always, the actual big problems always get put forward. And I, it seemed to me that that was partially also what you were maybe partially describing, that the focus on particular harms that women suffer means that you don't actually resolve the structural issues in international law. And to me, that always seemed to be a gap in in the way that feminism approaches international law, that we rarely tackle the kind of core structures. So the way that treaties themselves are made, the way they're worded, the way they're drafted, the way resolutions are worded and drafted, beyond looking at the sort of really important, obviously, critical role of, of feminist civil society in doing it. But that... To me, it it seems to you know, we we focus in on on as you really clearly set out, sexual violence and this, and then we never actually tackle the much bigger problem of the way in which way international law prioritises male questions, male issues, male structures, and always privileges them. And I was wondering, because obviously, because you have you know, such a great breadth of work, do, do you think it's possible for international law to, for us to be able feminists to be able to get into the those cracks to to be to actually go with that structure and obviously you know, there's some great stuff been done on the Security Council by Diotto and Hillary Charlesworth and stuff but it we never seem to be able to kind of get at that core structure so the question we always end up on the narrow focus because we can't tra- change or we, I don't know is it an uh, academic problem about not focusing on the you know the the, the domination of certain questions and certain voices and certain histories and in international law that stops feminism from being able to be taken seriously at the core and kind of follow that if if there was the kind of if if you wanted feminism to, or we need feminism to move off or to to, not, to stop to stopping kind of ghettoized into these types of of issues and questions and focusing in on this one specific thing as if it encapsulates everything and you know continuing saving certain groups Do, like if, is it treaties that we need to look at is it is it sovereignty we need to look at? is it, you know I know a huge question, I'm not expecting you to give me the super bullet solution here but it, i mean if, if you if you think the, like what what is the big i think structural aspect? Do you think that stopping feminism from actually being able to to make those kind of significant changes that would would enable us to get beyond where we all get corralled into on a kind of almost skeptical basis? I realise it's a massive question.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much. And you know, I I would say is it anything keep your camera? Um, It's a a question that invites us all um, to engage in the discussion, so I hope we will. But I have a few few thoughts. So first of all, you know, there's a tension in the the argument and, you know, putting together the book about myself, right? By writing the book, I, I too, am focusing on sexual violence and conflict. Um, But I'm using it to show how that focus ends like illustrates um, many uh, what I would say difficulties. And now I would say not only with the feminist movement, um, but with international law more generally. Um, So but but let's just say even with the narrow focus, I also try to look at some of the distributive consequences of it. And even though it was supposed to be the easier thing to fix, it turns out it's not so easy to fix. So the Security Council is taking this up tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, and they'll have another discussion and they'll talk about whether there should be another resolution. I think they'll decide not to, but um, they're doing this in the face of a report that was just released on sexual violence and conflict that suggests that the problems are as great as ever. So um, that just kind of a preliminary matter. But then on the question of of the structural biases um, or the 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 structures we need to attend to or not attending to them or failure to attend to them. I don't see that as just a feminist issue. And that's another kind of tough line. I end up drawing because I think that, um, you know, and I I said this a little bit at the end. Well, I said this when I was talking about the turn to criminal law, like that's a much broader problem. The feminists didn't invent it. Um, They participated in it Um, as well as the focus on what happens in war as opposed to ending war. They didn't. That's more. We can see that writ large on international law and international law. Um, So I think of um, Susan Marks' piece on root causes and how even right. That's specifically focused on human rights. Like human rights advocates, even when they say they're getting to root causes, they're not really getting at them. Um, And and I think that that would apply to looking at sources and a lot, I mean, we could go through various areas and great work has been done um, from critical perspectives, including feminist perspectives. Um, For me, it's, I'm trying to remember how you framed. Um, So I'll say, yeah, so how you framed the question about what I think we should be focused on. Um, But I would say political economy. I mean, I actually think that, A lot of it's not incidental that this happened after the end of the Cold War. Um, There ended up being a lot of agreement that there shouldn't have been, um, including around, uh, but not only around political economy. And I think that the work, I've been trying to get a little bit more back. I I, I try to resurrect the work of some of that anti-imperial feminism as it played out in the human rights debates. <clears throat> but also to see the ways in which they're very active. And, you know, they're critical of all kinds of international law, not just human rights, but somehow they, does, it hasn't really continued in the human rights sphere, that debate or discussion, or in the women, peace, and security. So, I mean, I kind of linked them here. It was sort of hard to try to present this chapter in the context of the whole book because it is a little bit different um, because it's picking up on that the common sense that was already already forged but I think you're asking the questions we need to keep asking Um, and we need to think about what's feminist about it, what's not feminist about it, um, what legacies continue from long ago Um, but uh, you know I think especially like now there is a lot of focus on economic inequality but it tends to be on within countries um, not between countries and we know that there continue to be I mean, we can just look at vaccine distribution, let's say right now and we can see that. Um, so thanks. I, and you I'm happy to keep talking
0: about it with you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Aoife. Um, so we've got a question here on the chat function uh, from Sarah in Nova Scotia. Um, further to Professor Donohue's comment about the structure and drafting of treaties and resolutions. I'm wondering what you think is actually the most ideal outcome of a resolution or a series of resolutions, given the diluting of language and commitments arising from intense negotiations that goes into them.
1: Yeah, so I feel like. Um, so thank you for the question. And uh, I feel like I need to say I'm not a policy maker. Um, And I haven't participated in drafting any resolutions, and I don't want to um, because I'm actually not sure that I mean, I think that the resolutions can do a lot of harm um, But I think that they're that they're also good to look at because they're they're manifestations of a lot of what's already happening with or without resolution Um, You know, I I was I was going to say um, in response to the previous question as well that I think, you know, and and moving into the, so I'm talking about the Security Council, so we think about the Security Council, but I think that one of the things that feminists would do well to do more than they are doing is to think more broadly about coalitions. So and I I didn't write about this, but I I think that one of the things that happened in the WPS agenda is you just brought folks together with very different agendas. And they thought that because they were feminist, they could. In rare instances, work together in most instances, ignore each other, um, take advantage of the attention that one got um, for the other. but I'd be much more interested in thinking about what resolutions about disarmament would look like, for example. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, I reproduce by looking at the WPS agendas. I also look at some of the counterterrorism um, uh, resolutions and the human security resolutions. But there are a ton and ton of resolutions. So it might be that there's plenty, I'm sure there's plenty out there to look at. But um, I, I don't know that feminists are so involved in it or they're not, they're not claiming it. So... Um, I don't know if that's the question, so I'm looking at the underlying, the most ideal outcome of a resolution or series of resolutions. Um, And maybe I maybe I'd say, you know, one, do no harm. Um, And and so that's right. So if you're going to participate, you work hard to make them do no harm. Um, So you don't get resolutions passed that have counterterrorism in them and make. Um, I mean, in at all. Um, so, I don't think it, the opposition
0: would just be that feminists or women are made to be central to them. I think the problem is with what they're doing more generally. Uh, super, thank you, Karen. Uh, we have um, Kate uh, Macongo has her hand up. Would you like to join us, Kate?
4: Hi. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this question well. I've tried to put my camera on, but it doesn't seem to want to go on. Um, I'm interested in thinking about how to move forward for the best outcome, bearing in mind the risks attached to different approaches. So I, what you're saying about focusing on disarmament, focusing on uh, you know, demilitarization, I find really appealing and sensible. Um, In places where that has happened and maybe there hasn't been a focus on gender relations then is the risk that the the piece that may get um you know secured for the future is from a gender point of view imbalanced and potentially abusive so how do we get the conversation going that we're not focusing just on punitive criminal justice responses but still then, beyond conflict, moving towards a better society from a gender point of view. Do you say the last bit again, I didn't hear it. that how do we how do we um, beyond conflict move towards better societies from a gender relations point of view? Um, better, Sorry, I think maybe there's too many microphones on or something. It makes it difficult for the sound. But um, so can someone else say what I've just said? <laughs> if if I. I'm, it. I'm sorry. I heard
1: everything except the last the last bit.
4: From a gender relations point of view.
1: Right. Okay. Well, let me, let me try. What um. So what I heard you say asking is, you know, if 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 we decide to put our energies or focus on disarmament, larger peace movements. I mean, peace movements it might, but participate in trying to refound them. Um, or dealing with and I and I suppose you could take that to. Um, larger visions of a political economy as well um, that the gender focus often gets lost. Um, and. Is that the, and so how do we keep gender alive in these various conversations?
4: Yes, I think so and get, and get that balance so that one, going down one route doesn't mean abandoning another route.
1: Right. No, I think that's a really, I mean, obviously it's a really important question and I, and I think from Catherine's first question to me, you know, it's important to remember also that there are people out doing things in many places that we're not seeing. So I, I kind of feel like part of the the task is to find is to, is to look at the different sorts of. Movements, policy initiatives, activism um, that we're interested in on a variety of levels, and maybe they're not explicitly gender stated as gender um, and by participating in them, perhaps as a way to, to ensure that they are mo- more focused on gender. Um, but you know, I think what we see is that just looking at gender doesn't doesn't mean anything, right? That you're still going to continue to have debates about what that means in whatever realm we look at. So I think that's part of why you know I'm call, I'm suggesting that we be clear about our differences and put them on the table. And I say the same thing, by the way, about the human rights movement. Like we're doing so many things, imagining that we're um, and working in collaboration, that we share the same uh, background assumptions, that we share the same visions of a better world, including political economy, um, when in fact we have very, very, very different focuses. And, and, and sometimes movements, right, try not to, to show their differences, but I think that it's come to be that, the, that we're now in alliances that, don't necessarily make sense. Um, and people have been saying, so die out, most notably for some time, like maybe we should have just never gotten into the Security Council. But some of the people who put forward 1325 for have said that um, that was just the wrong way to go. We shouldn't have gone and tried to play with such fire. I, I don't think that's really the answer. Um, I think you might not want to play with it because it's an, which I think they ultimately get to. Like, actually, what were we thinking? How would the agenda be any different? And any kind of changes we would make would be so subtle within that. And the the larger substantive aims, right, so getting women at the peace table is important, but why do you want them at the peace table? Um, Because you want different outcomes, and those outcomes may come from having women there, they may I'm guessing you or I or Catherine or others would not be happy with. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Um,
0: thank you, Karen. Um, um, I, knew, I,
1: knew I
5: knew you know has, uh, has, uh, Great. Thanks. Um, can you hear me, Catherine and Karen? Yes. Great. Thanks. Um, so, Catherine, uh, Karen, again, thank you so much. Um, I'm calling in from D.C. So this was really brilliant um, to listen to. I think something and maybe you talk this is in the larger book outside of just this chapter as a whole. Um, something that I've been looking at recently is conversations around use of force and the co-optation of issues around gender, including sexual violence in justifications for entering a conflict, joining it, um, whether it's a perception of a justification or if it's um, if the people believe that they're truly doing the right thing by entering um, in sort of a military intervention in that way. Um, And I didn't know. And again, I'm sure you talk about this more in the book as a whole, but thinking about larger conversations that are happening, particularly in the US around um, reforming institutions around abolition and um, non um, anti-militarism, etc. If you see that there's going to be potentially, hopefully a move towards that in the wider movement to sort of say, we know that there's been this co-optation that it's been going on. Maybe it's because of, among many reasons, the engagement with the Security Council and sort of that validation that comes from being part of a, a security lens. Um, but I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you. And when can I read what you're writing? It sounds very, very useful. Um, I love I'd love to see it. And especially the question about the perception versus the. Belief um, and and that would be true both for let's just say, feminists who are uh, encouraging intervention as well as George W. Bush using gender, right? Um, and, and actually, I think we kind of have to believe George W. Bush, um, that he believes it, um, or we can't, or he did, um, or, or, or it's hard to really respond to it. Um, you know, I, so it's a good question. I mean, I, I wish you were right. <laughs> Um, I but but I think central to my argument about it not being cooptation um, is a suggestion that there's something deep. And I do talk about this a lot more in the book in the feminist theoretical approach of those who have prevailed. Um, so I didn't really get into it in the talk. I talked about structural bias feminists, And I said some of them think sexual that sex is the basis of subordination. Um, it was actually that group that prevailed And so there's a whole other discussion in the book about the, um, pros, the, uh, sex positivism versus the anti-sex, um, uh, pro- debates really that took place largely around sex work, um, and, you know, debates around the use of sexual slavery, which is now just accepted quite readily, um, in international criminal legal discourse anyway. Um, so I, and, and, but you, again, you raise a question that I'm struggling with beyond just thinking about feminism. So, um, I actually just wrote a little blog piece, which was my first blog piece ever, um, in which I said, you know, human rights advocates and abolitionists, I mean, I give them as an example. So I just say there are a bunch of movements out there. And we need to take seriously movements that aren't grounded in human rights discourse. And I think we could say our international legal discourse. Um, But but human rights is a good one because for a long time, that's how we thought that social movements had to articulate um, their, their, their goals and their sense of the problems. And I say, actually, what if we listen to them differently and don't just listen through that human rights lens? And abolitionism, abolition is one of the, arguments i use and i actually i we um at my center in texas last year we hosted a conference on prison abolition and human rights and it was very interesting because the abolitionists all came and thought yeah we are into human rights of course um and they didn't understand that actually human rights folks are all into carceralism now so okay i think that 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 conference was an example of the ways in which at least some of us are trying to take stock and say we have something to learn from these other movements but I, you know, I and I don't have as much at stake in the debate about whether it's human rights or even whether it's feminist at some level that other people do. Um, but I just think that um, we have to be willing to hear what the larger arguments are. I mean, the abolitionists have a totally different view of the state um, than human rights active advocates, much less human rights lawyers. Um, so I, I, it's a you know and, and I, I also think that there's there's a lot you know I mean it's hard to tell right when we thought that there were more critiques of neoliberalism and they were more vocal and then we get Donald Trump as our president and then we have um, so then we have a pandemic and then it turns out that actually we turn to some things that we, we've seen that in fact the government, Maybe should have some social some responsibility, including for people who are out of work. Um, maybe there will be a shift. Maybe there won't be a shift. Um, it's too early to tell. None of that is articulated in human rights terms. Now, you could say well, it would be actually much better if it were, because then it's not up to the whims of politicians. But I think that there are other folks out there who are arguing, who are, are, are out there on the streets, right, around different forms of justice that, we need to listen
5: to more carefully. Please send the paper. <laughs> I will it's a, it's a long work in progress, but thanks so much. That was excellent.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Julia, for the, the question of the contribution. Um, I'm conscious that we're just sort of um, arriving at the end of our time. So if there aren't uh, further questions from the from the audience, um, Karen, I'm, I'm mindful that uh, the book came out a little a little while ago. Uh, you finished it a while ago before that. So I thought it might be nice just to hear a little bit about what you're doing now. What's next?
1: Ah, well, um, along the lines of the book and some of what I've been discussing, as I mentioned, I'm I I am looking at the history of Sida and the activism both governmental and non-governmental, and actually the governmental is easier to get a hold of, but some of that is surprising um, that led to it. And uh particularly intrigued, again, by the reference to, I mean, even the new international economic order is referenced in CEDAW, mm-hmm. um, which just, it, it dates it, but it's also, as I think Julia was mentioning, I mean, some, there's been a movement also to reclaim, to rethink about the new international economic order, so, to try to think about what that would mean and take it seriously and kind of imagine um, what alternative visions had been available um, in, a, in, in more detail than I was able to do in the book. Um, I'll also say I just finished a piece on Afro-Brazilian rural land rights um, and a constitutional court case on that uses Nancy Fraser's uh, recognition and redistribution to grant to say that. Kilambolas have, who are formerly, descendants of formerly enslaved people who still live in rural communities, largely rural, not only rural communities, um, that they have a right to collective land, which is recognized in the Constitution, but um, has been challenged in a bunch of ways. And that's been interesting because it's, uh, I've I've used some of Fraser's more recent work on expropriation um, and thinking about actually how Marxism, and and which was some of what she was influenced by early on. Socialist feminism doesn't necessarily translate, which she's now recognizing um, into other kinds of arenas. And then I'm working on a big project on the future of work, um, uh, which is a collaborative project and trying to think more broadly about work and livelihood, which you could hear a little bit about a little bit of in my comments a minute ago, I guess. So uh, I'm trying to keep this line going, but in that larger political context that um i think we need to be need to attend to and 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 i should say with those last two projects racial capitalism is really important and i i it, i don't know if it's going to be interesting to see a into which um i might be able to bring some of that uh well it, it will come in it might not come in so explicitly in the C law piece
0: Terrific. Well, wonderful. I can't wait to, to see all of that come to fruition. Um, so it's it also just to thank you so much, Karen. Um, it's really been a wonderful discussion and, and a wonderful presentation. And thank you so much for the book. And, and I know when having um, reading the book, actually, I was brought back to a lot of your earlier work. I could see the culmination of it from work from the early 90s. Um, so, so congratulations on a, on a wonderful piece of scholarship. Thank you. Um, just to share with our participants that we will. Um, we have recorded the session. We will share the recording with you. Um, with for the video and you can also get the audio uh through the TJI podcast. And do stay in touch. Um, if you're interested in these themes, we have lots of um, upcoming events related to them as well. Um, and uh, thank you all for joining us and have a good day to everybody all over the world. Um, and a special Karen. Thank you so much.